City, trauma code to WBAI. I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. And I am Dr. Cassandra Raphael, an adult and child psychiatrist. Welcome to Trauma Code. Together we will focus on healing of mind, body, and community from trauma. We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large. Join us on Monday at 2 p.m. on WBAI. To the Trauma Code, this is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, live and in studio for October 30th, 2023, our uh, Halloween episode of the Trauma Code, uh, and uh, Dr. Raphael has clinical obligations, unfortunately, and will not be joining us in studio, um, even though I'm sure she would have uh, some very intelligent commentary on uh, on the paper we're going to discuss with our guests in a minute, just so you uh, know what to expect. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, a recent academic article uh, looking at a big series of patients in Canada that suggests that uh, female surgeons, women surgeons, have better outcome than men surgeons. Um, but before that, I wanted to talk about a couple of things before we get uh, deep into the interview. Obviously, we're a show um, that covers uh, trauma, gun violence, mass shootings, and we know this this last couple of days has seen uh Two, um, you know, it seems like day after day, really um, uh, impressive, uh, terrifying mass shootings. One uh, in Maine that killed 18 people, a total of 31 people shot. And then like the next day in Tampa, 20 people shot, two fatally. 
Um, but, you know, this is just the rhythm of life in 21st century America. Um, and, you know, that's part of what we're going to cover, part of what we're trying to change in the world. And uh, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to have a guest to talk on this, uh, Drew McKevitt, who just uh, wrote a book, which I'm going to paraphrase the title. I'm sorry. But if you look up Drew McKevitt, part of the title is Gun Capitalism and Culture in America. Um, and we're going to talk uh, about that. And I think it will be very useful in understand, understanding the current homicide and gun violence crisis in America. And then we'll have on uh, one of my colleagues, someone I look up to, Dr. Brian Williams, a trauma surgeon uh, who uh, became a little bit uh, famous when he was working in Dallas when six people, uh, six police officers got shot and he treated them, also has worked at University of Chicago, and he's now running for Congress in Texas. So we'll have him on the show discussing his new book, um, the, uh, And the Bodies Keep Coming. Um, and of course, you know, if anyone has been paying attention to the news um, out of Gaza, the ongoing uh, really unprecedented mass casualty situation in Gaza, over 8,000 killed, probably at least 3,000 of them children uh, in the setting of an ongoing siege, uh, you know, power communications, water, fuel all cut off. Hospitals have been hit um, multiple times. We know we spoke about the um the the bombing of the Anglican hospital in uh, Gaza City and you know there's new news that uh the Turkish hospital which was the cancer center in the region was also bombed um and I'm hoping to have Dr. Uh, Osite Alceron at the end of the show um and if you're interested in that topic look up either on the archives from last week or on uh, podcast feed wherever you get yours. Trauma code uh, with Dr. Osaid Alser A L S E R um, on a Gaza update from last week, and we'll see if if he's clinically available. We we'll have him on at the end of the show. Um, but as I mentioned, first we're going to have on uh, Dr. Argavan Salas and Dr. Christopher Wallace, not to be confused with Brooklyn's own Chris Wallace, spelled differently. Um, but these are two uh, surgeons, I believe, physicians. Uh, who have written on surgeon sex and long-term post-operative outcomes among patients undergoing common surgeries. So we're going to have a little musical break, and we're going to get our guests on the line. Thanks for joining us on Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald. See you in a minute. Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, live and in studio, and I'm pretty sure that music was Sophia Curtisis Habla Con Ella, um, I, be I believe a Peruvian uh, musician that was from an album that just dropped in the last couple of weeks. But we have on the line with us, I believe, I hope, Dr. Christopher Wallace and Dr. Ar Argavan Salas. Uh, guys, uh, Argavan, can you hear me? Are you with us? I'm here. I'm here. Good morning. And, good afternoon. And pardon, I, I, I just uh, spoke to you by the first name. Feel free to do the same. We're on a first name basis today. Uh, Chris, Dr. Uh, Wallace, are you with us? Yes. Pleasure to join you today. Excellent. Well, well, thank you so much for joining us. And there's a lot going on in the world. But for weeks, I've been uh, reaching out and trying to get you guys on the air to talk about a recent, dare I say, um, provocative paper um, like I said, entitled Surgeon Sex and Long-Term Post-Operative Outcomes Among Patients Undergoing Common Surgeries. And, you know, the, you know, the basic thesis is that uh, in some measurable way, at least in some certain population that you studied, 
um, patients of female surgeons have better outcomes than male surgeons. And uh, Chris or Dr. Wallace, you know, as the first author on the paper, do you mind just telling us what question did you hope to answer uh, in in uh, doing this research, and how did you go about uh, addressing that question? Absolutely. So I'll try and keep it relatively short and sweet because I think um, you know Argument's got some great thoughts. I think probably that are, are better than mine in terms of what this means for the the world, or at least the world of surgery. But just um, to sort of lay the groundwork here, this was a, a study that Belt on prior work we did. So back in 2018, we published a first paper looking at the effect of surgeon sex on patients' outcomes. And at that time, we looked at 30-day outcomes, as most surgeons will know, is common in keeping with, you know, the NISQIP uh, approach or, or, you know, various other sort of short-term surgical quality improvement endeavors. And we've done a, a variety of work in the meantime trying to look at um, other questions around this issue, looking at how um, physicians may practice differently and, and other factors that may play in. But one of the things that um, came to us was that, you know, short-term outcomes clearly aren't uh, the only thing that matters, and, and those of us who take care of patients or, you know, been through the, the training process will know that um, the process of recovery from surgery takes much longer than just 30 days. And one of the things that really cemented this for me was the work from uh, John Berkmeyer where uh, using the uh, Michigan Bariatric Collaborative, they videotaped surgeons and had them uh, anonymously uh, rated by their peers. And those peer ratings of surgical technical skill were an important predictor of uh, short-term 30-day outcomes, but not of long-term outcomes, not of one-year outcomes after bariatric surgery. So it really emphasized to me and, and the rest of the team that there are different factors that may be important for looking at 30-day outcomes as compared to long-term outcomes. And so we wanted to broaden this uh, this research program to look at these longer uh, outcome metrics. And so here we used a population-based data set in Ontario, Canada. And one of the benefits we have in Ontario with a single pair a healthcare system is that we can capture all patients regardless of age or insurance status undergoing common surgeries and then because uh, all follow-up care is also provided within the same care system any form of readmission hospitalization any other healthcare related event that happens at any point is captured we don't have to worry about um, jurisdictional differences or or changes in in funding status for example making it difficult to study these patients longitudinally and so we we just assessed a, a common cohort of 25 different elective and emergent surgeries across all surgical specialties and we asked the question in a risk adjusted way after accounting for patient and physician and hospital and procedure characteristics, uh, does the uh, sex of the operating surgeon affect patients' long-term outcomes? And we called an adverse outcome a composite of death, readmission, or major complication at 90 days or one year after surgery. And we found that in keeping with uh, our prior work um, uh, and that of others, that patients who had a female surgeon uh, were less likely to have these adverse outcomes. In particular, they're uh, notably less likely to die um, uh, within 90 days or one year after surgery. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, listeners with a, an acute ear might have noticed the way that you said the vowel O um, is a distinctly Canadian pronunciation. Um, and, and you looked at patients in, in Canada, um, and, and part of the, you know, we're going to get to some of it, but I think one of the early questions is how relevant is this to an American practice? So I think, that's a, I think it's a really interesting question. Maybe, you know, as someone who has trained in Canada, uh, trained in fellowship in the U.S. and, and now practices again in Canada, uh, I see very many similarities between the, the two. Um, I think the mechanism by which I would postulate the effect of surgeon sex on patient outcomes I don't think is health system dependent. And so uh, I believe it's uh, very generalizable and I think mm. – um, you know, we have some some data from other jurisdictions that would corroborate that, but I'm interested in sort of your perspective or, or uh, Argument's perspective and, on, you know, whether this looks like data that, that you guys would think is uh, relevant for, for an American patient population. And and just to clarify, I want to get Argument's thoughts on this in a second, but um, Chris, exactly which surgeries are we talking about that are common surgeries um, that we're comparing outcomes? 
Yeah, so we have 25 different surgeries here. Um, off the top of my head, I'll try and list uh, many for you. So we've got general surgical procedures. We've included things like appendectomies, cholecystectomies, um, bowel resections. Um, we've looked at uh, subspecialties of general surgery. So we've looked at, you know, thoracic surgeries, things like lobectomies and wedge resections. We've looked at HPB surgeries, things like uh, hepatectomies or partial hepatectomies. Uh, we've considered orthopedic surgery, uh, hip and knees, um, both traumatic and elective. We've looked at cardiac surgeries with um, uh, bypasses. We've looked at vascular with AAA and, and other bi- vascular bypasses. We've looked at obstetrics and gynecology with hysterectomies. We've looked at ENT with neck dissections and thyroidectomies. We've looked at urology with um, prostatectomies and cystectomies. Uh, we've looked at some plastic surgical procedures. Um, what am well, I missing? I, you said an awful lot of, of Latin or something, so I'm going to have to, I think, interpret a little bit. But you mentioned um, some very common surgeries, not just general surgery, you know, including the appendix and gallbladder, but also liver, which is also advanced surgery, lung and heart surgery in the chest, um, bone and joint surgery with orthopedists, uh, major vascular surgery like the aorta and uh you know the, the the sort of bypass graft with which are both um, in pr- pretty sick patients usually OBGYN um, surgeries neck surgeries uh, urology surgeries so a really a large gamut um, so um, Argavan Dr Salas uh, you know how does this fit with your um, you're someone who's written an awful lot about um, sexism within healthcare and uh, including um, directed at healthcare workers. How does this fit in with your knowledge and experience and understanding, um, you know, outcomes for male and female uh, patients, male and female surgeons, and sexism in medicine? Yeah, I, I think it's important to point out that, and Chris kind of alluded to this earlier, but that we have really decades of data that suggests the way, on the whole, right, this is a generalization, that on the whole, the way women physicians care for patients is qualitatively different from the way men physicians care for patients. And this is going back to at least the early 1990s. There was a huge um, you know, kind of landmark study in the New England Journal that showed that women physicians are more likely to adhere to guidelines for when to screen for cancer. Um, and it was specifically looking at mammography and pap smears. So women physicians were much more likely to offer those to patients when it was appropriate than were men physicians. But there are, and that's just one example and one of the earlier examples that I'm aware of. But then we have from that time forward, and there's probably some before that that I've missed, but at least from that time forward, we have a number of studies showing that women physicians, again, on the whole, as a generalization, are more likely to adhere to guidelines, are more likely to involve specialists in the patient's care when appropriate. They're more likely to um, spend time or they spend longer time with patients. They're more likely to ask about psychosocial factors that might be impacting the the patient's life and their health. Um, And uh, a number of other kind of differences have been noted like this over time. And so it's not, you know, uh, Chris's earlier work, the first manuscript I'm aware of that he's published on this was in 2017, uh, which is the same time that there was a major manuscript that came out in JAMA Internal Medicine looking at non-surgical, right? So looking at internal medicine outcomes for patients with common uh, reasons for admission to the hospital, like pneumonia or heart failure. And in that population, they also found similarly that patients of women physicians had better outcomes for in terms of uh, readmission and death within 30 days. So I'm I'm saying all that to say there's a long history of research that shows there are likely some differences, again, on the whole in the way men and women approach patient care. And that's the kind of foundation for this type of work that Chris has been doing. And that other article was uh, the first author was a a collaborator of ours uh, whose last name is Sagawa. And that I, I say all this because sometimes when people see these manuscripts or this research, they kind of are skeptical, which, you know, it's appropriate to always be skeptical of any research that we're kind of examining and trying to understand what the impact of it might be or what, what the um, meaning of it really is. And they'll just jump to saying, this is nonsense. There's no reason for this. You know, you're just pushing some agenda or whatever, you know, this is what kind of skeptical people may say. And to them, I, I often will say, but but it's not just like people sat there one day and said, hey, I have no reason to suspect this, but let's just see if women 
patients' outcomes for women physicians are different from outcomes for men physicians. And, In and reality, point- it's like any other good research where there were all these studies that pointed to potential differences and very thoughtful people like Chris and Sagawa uh, wanted to say, well, does this impact the patient outcomes or is there an association between physician sex and patient outcomes? And so that's, I think, where all these studies started. And, and we've had major publications, as I say, going back to at least 2017, looking at these large data sets, looking at the, the outcomes. Right. And if you're just joining us, we're on Trauma Code. I'm Dr. Simon Fitzgerald with two authors of a recent paper basically showing that uh, the patients of female surgeons had better outcomes than patients of male surgeons, at least within the, um, the, the group of patients they studied in Ontario, Canada. And, uh, you know, uh, Argaman, you, you brought up a lot of interesting um, evidence-based explanations for why this outcome would be um, this way. And, and I have to admit, when I first saw the headline, I half-jokingly um, but half-serious said that, you know, you know, my, my partners that are female trauma surgeons have uh, emergency general surgeons have much smaller hands. And I said, oh, it's because they can make smaller incisions and, and be more finer and, and delicate where it's necessary. Um, but actually, uh, you're showing that it's way more than that, right? It's including what's been well-documented, spending more time with the patient, apparently being more conscientious and willing to ask for help when it'll benefit the patient, um, being more adherent to guidelines. Um, but what strikes me is that these are not like the hands or glove size, right? These are, you know, uh, factors that we can change in the way that we practice and approach patients. So, you know, what would you um, s- communicate to to good faith, um, especially people in healthcare uh, who are, are hearing about this research? I think what um, what often is said at the end of these manuscripts is is very true, which is that. You know, the goal here is not to, um, you know, bash any group of people. The goal is to figure out how do we all together provide better care for our patients. And so really digging into a little bit more um, the mechanisms, I think, would be helpful, the mechanisms for these differences. Um, and I know that Chris has some work going on in that space right now. We have basically these correlational studies that are the ones that I referenced going back to the 1990s. And it's, I think, reasonable to infer that those are the reasons we might see these differences in outcomes, but we don't really have any direct evidence of that. You know, we don't don't have like a randomized controlled trial where people are assigned to either a man or a woman uh, physician, and then we see what happens, right? And I don't think that's likely to happen, um, probably ever would be my guess, but um, maybe I'm being cynical about that. But anyway, um, we don't have that kind of direct evidence. So trying to understand a little bit more about what specific differences in approaches between men and women physicians may be contributing to these differences in outcomes, um, I think will be really important in terms of optimizing the care that our patients receive and then the outcomes that they therefore have. Excellent. And Chris, I want to get into any other research that you're doing on the topic, but also give you a chance. I think one of the the healthy things um, in research when it's done honestly is, you know, once you do all of your thing and you did the deep dive, um, if you can step back from it for a minute and say, you know, my why might this not um, be as important or as game-changing? What are the limitations of the work that we've done? Anything else that you want to say at, at looking at, at how, you know, as much as you tried to, to, to have the strongest um, research possible, what limitations did you find in the data and what sort of caveats should we take in trying to interpret this difference in outcomes between men and women surgeons? Yeah, so I think it's a it's a great point and it's very well received. And I think uh, anyone who writes a paper and isn't ready to uh, volunteer the the limitations of their own analysis needs to to take a step back and so I would say there we can categorize the the potential issues here in a number of different ways, but fundamentally they all come back to the question of the kind of data we 're having to rely on so we are using large databases um, to derive our our 
a whole analysis, everything we know about the patients and the physicians. And so um, that's great because it allows us large numbers of patients. It gives us a generalizable uh, data set. So we're not just looking at, you know, patients treated at the Ivory Tower Center of Excellence Hospital in the middle of the uh, biggest uh, city. We're looking at, you know, those patients, but also the patients treated at very small community hospitals or, you know, a safety net kind of hospital. Um, but what does using these data sets uh, limit us to? So number one, the first thing is we are very careful in the paper and in our language to say that we are looking at surgeon sex here. So that is the biologic sex. And this is based on the information that physicians or surgeons provided when they registered um, with the, the medical board, essentially. Um, and so when you think about uh, the way we're hypothesizing that the mechanism may may work here, sex is probably not the actually most important variable. Uh, gender or or the gender identity of a physician probably interacts or affects how they interact uh, with their peers, with their patients, and, and and really with the world in a much more impactful way than their sex. And so um, that's the first. Um, uh, you know, clear limitation with the data set. Um, granted, the m majority of patients have, uh, con or sorry, the majority of individuals, patients and physicians alike, have a concordant um, uh, gender and sex expression, but that's worth noting. Number two is uh, sex uh, and its effects in society don't exist um, in a vacuum. And so there's important intersectionality with race, ethnicity, uh, socioeconomic status, disability, and numerous other um, sort of social um, factors and socio-demographics. Um, and so in our data set, uh, we don't have many of these. We have some, but not not all, um, and so there's there's um, an important uh, element of nuance that's uh, left there. And then the third thing that I think uh, Argovanardi well alluded to is that this is not a randomized trial. We don't, you know, give patients a uh, physician uh, uh, at random, and so. Um, there are differences in uh, male and female surgeons in terms of how they practice, in terms of how old they are, how many years they've been in practice. And so we've built risk-adjusted multivariable models to account for these differences. But at the end of the day, um, these models are always imperfect. They give us our best estimation or best approximation of the truth, but never uh, perfect. Um, and so that leads to a, a risk of what we call residual confounding, which is the chance that the differences we're seeing that we think are due to differences because of male and female surgeons may be due to other differences that we can't observe. Now, there are ways you can assess this statistically, and it would have to be a, a much more prevalent factor um, that has a really powerful influence to negate our findings, but um, clearly the kind of study we've designed can never um, fully uh, eliminate that risk. Wow. And um, Argavan, anything else that uh, you would want our audience, a lay audience, uh, to consider um, in in sharing your work on the on different outcomes, improved outcomes for patients of female surgeons compared to male surgeons? Yeah, so I have just a couple of small things to add here. Um, one is that as Chris was just talking about, that one of the things that comes up a lot is people um, who, again, are skeptical of the work or wanting to kind of um, cancel it, if you will, um, is they'll say that the, the, these data don't show causality. This is correlational data. And, and I just want to point that out because we are well aware and we are not asserting with this work that this work by itself proves that it's a causal relationship between surgeon sex or surgeon gender uh, and patient outcomes. The other thing I wanna point out is that what really strikes me when we look at all of these data, not just the study that we're talking about today, but really when you look at it, all of the totality of data that's out there on physician sex and patient outcomes, um, is that we know 
women physicians experience a lot of different challenges in getting our work done compared to our men colleagues. So that includes things that I think you alluded to earlier, Simon, which are implicit bias, outright discrimination, microaggressions, sexual harassment. Um, we also, uh, some colleagues and I described something called the status leveling burden, which uh, women surgeons describe as the need to kind of bring ourselves down um, by taking on tasks that would typically be performed by other members of the healthcare team by being excessively available, meaning showing up early and staying late by doing what's called performative niceness and just being extra saccharine in all of our interactions with people just so no one thinks that we think we're full of ourselves or that you know, we think we're too good for wherever we are or whatever, which is a thing that men surgeons don't have to worry about. Um, because even if people think that about a man surgeon, they, they write that off as part of, you know, his wondrous skill and how great he is as a surgeon. And I'm mentioning this because the thing that really strikes me, again, when we look at the totality of this research, is that despite all of this and the extra labor that women physicians have to take on in order to just do our work and the biases and everything else that's in our environment, coming from patients, coming from uh, allied healthcare workers, coming from our colleagues, et cetera, is really incredible that the patients of women surgeons and women physicians are having better outcomes. It makes me think, again, this is not causal and this is not a conclusion from the specific article we're talking about, but just me as a person putting all of this data together, it makes me wonder how much better women physicians' outcomes or the patients of women physicians' outcomes would be if we weren't facing all of these additional barriers. If we could just do our work in the same way that our men colleagues can, which is to be supported by other folks in the healthcare team instead of having to prove to them that we deserve their support, I think we might, you know, again, this is all theoretical, but that we might even see a bigger gap in those outcomes. Wow. And, you know, I, I wish Dr. Raphael was here because definitely uh, having gone through together uh, you know, uh, medical school, residency training, and uh, attending uh, life being, the, you know, the senior doctor, definitely have very different experiences and would be very relevant to this, and that could definitely, in and of itself, take up more than a whole show. Um, Chris, anything else that, that you want to leave our audience with about uh, this research before we uh, pivot? Yeah, so I think, you know, we've when we look at the studies that we've done, uh, or at least that I've done, um, I'm heavily focused on looking at the patient outcomes. And I think that's um, really important. But uh, Argavan's last comment, I think, is critical. And and I've been ruminating on this a lot. And I think, actually, in some of the ways that female physicians get um, penalized, it actually benefits their patients. So for example, we know that female physicians spend more time with their patients. That clearly is beneficial for the patients, um, but it harms uh, female physicians for a number uh, of reasons in terms of career advancement, in terms of reimbursement or, or remuneration. Um, and, you know, one of the, the critiques of our paper is that, you know, female surgeons have lower volumes than male surgeons. So the corollary of having lower volumes is that you're treating somewhat fewer patients. And so you're taking more time to treat each patient. And maybe that's why you're getting better outcomes. And so I think we need to be really careful about the notion that, you know, the the factors we're adjusting for, um, you know, explain away why, you know, in our analysis, men maybe aren't getting a fair shake and, and pause and be a little introspective and think about maybe those reasons are exactly why women are getting better outcomes. And if anything, accounting for them um, is is diminishing the real benefit that women bring to the table and bring to their patients. Which is, of course, an interesting finding because uh, higher volumes in many um, studies of surgeries, especially with complex surgeries, um, you know, people who do more of the same type of surgery have better outcomes. So it's a little bit interesting to show better outcomes in a group with lower volumes, and, and your point is well taken. Um, Argavan, any last thoughts on the topic? You know, I'm always going to have more thoughts, so if you keep asking, I will have more to say. But one thing that that brought up for me is there's there's a study that came out in the same uh, at the same time as the study that we're talking about today, which was looking at uh, cholecystectomies. 
gallbladder removals. And what they found was that women surgeons spent a little bit longer even in the operating room. So I think Chris was mostly referencing probably, uh, well, I don't know what was in his head, but what I heard him say when, when I was listening to him was I was thinking about outpatient settings and how long women physicians will spend in those uh, outpatient visits. But these data, uh, again, just from at least this one study looking at cholecystectomies, showed that women uh, surgeons will spend a little bit longer. It was on the order of just like a few minutes, you know, like three to seven minutes longer in the OR. And, and you have to wonder, too, is that like taking a little bit extra care? Is that what's happening there or what, you know, what's happening in those extra few minutes? Um, because they also found in their study that the patients who were treated by women surgeons had better outcomes for that one specific surgery. Um, and then they, they found this difference in the time. So I do think that's part of it. And we also just adding to what Chris said, it, we, we kind of hypothesize the same thing in our paper on the status leveling burden that even though taking on all this additional work and showing up early and, and staying late and all of this is additional labor for for women physicians, which is not, as Chris was uh, referring to, compensated time, um, that it may be that taking on all these additional behaviors and tasks and roles does then translate to better outcomes for the patients. It's just that, as he was saying, then it's, it's additional labor that women physicians are doing that can damage in, in some ways their career at the, or their career trajectory, because that's time that's not spent if you're in academics, for example, writing a manuscript, writing an abstract, doing committee work, et cetera. Excellent. Well, uh, Dr. Argvon Salas, Dr. Christopher Wallace, uh, thank you so much for coming on The Trauma Code and talking about your recent paper in JAMA Surgery, the Journal of the American Medical Association, uh, Surgeon Sex and Long-Term Postoperative Outcomes. <laughs> among patients undergoing common surgeries. Um, and we're going to uh, pivot, have a little musical break, and then Dr. Osaid Alser is going to update us on the, uh, the war and the crisis in Gaza. Thank you again for joining us. We'll be back in a minute. Yeah. whole episode be us. <laughs> Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald live and in studio for October 30th. And we just had on Dr. Argavan Salas and Dr. Christopher Wallace talking about basically um, their research showing um, that in some ways the patients of female surgeons have better outcomes than male surgeons. So definitely check that out if you have any interest. And that musical break uh, was from a recent Nora Jones um, collaboration with Quest Love and Qu Christian McBride. Um, she was recently just playing at the Blue Note uh, with uh, Robert Glasper. Definitely that recommendation probably from last week or two weeks ago stands. If you have the opportunity to see Robert Glasper uh, live at the Blue Note, that uh, saw her recently with Nora Jones was excellent. Um, but we wanted to turn our attention back to uh, Gaza, the war and the crisis, the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. And we have on the line again, I guess for the third week in a row, Dr. Osaid Esser, are you with us? Yes, sir. Can you hear me okay? Sure. Speak up. Um, you know, and, you know, you've been on uh, twice before talking about what's going on, but we know that since we last spoke to you, um, the siege of Gaza has become more acute. The bombing has become more intense. Um, the loss of almost all power and communications at time and the beginning of basically a, a ground invasion. And you've shared, um, you know, and I think you, you made the point, all Palestinians, particularly those in Gaza, have personal, you know, familial colleague, personal losses, um, and, and you've shared some of those. Um, and uh, so, what, what, uh, Osaid, what would you say to, to New York? What's been going on in Gaza? What, what would you want us to know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the military attacks have been uh, going on since October 7th, and they're still... Uh, getting it's, it's getting worse uh, for sure, and um, uh, there's some limited ground invasion as well uh, on the northern and eastern side. Uh, in terms of you know the healthcare, uh, you know impact on healthcare. Uh, as a as a physician myself, who trained in 
in Gaza for for medical school and brief short uh, period of time uh, after. Um, you know, the I think what's 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 bothering me myself and like really making me angry and sad is the killing of the healthcare workers. So so far, according to the Minister of Health from this morning. Um, they have 124, uh, 124 um, healthcare workers killed, and that includes at least 35 uh, physicians, and that includes uh, attending consultant physicians, uh, residents, uh, medical students across the spectrum, and 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 many of them I know personally. I worked with as some of my mentors, some of my mentees, um, some of my colleagues, and 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 in just this morning, like another, you know, me- medical student of mine, when I was teaching in the medical school, uh, who is now a, a, an orthopedic resident, he was killed. Wow. And 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 f- from what I can see, I, I see a pattern of injuries uh, and like casualties from among healthcare workers. Um, many of them they work at the hospital for many days, and then the moment they go back home, their entire like building gets targeted. So now I'm thinking, I feel like those healthcare workers, whenever they go back from like whatever Shifa hospital or European Gaza hospital where they work, I, I feel like they are being targeted along with their entire families, which is which is unprecedented and it's 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 dangerous to be honest. Right. Um, now just reading some of the stats uh, from the Minister of Health this morning. Um, also, the, the additional hospitals have been targeted. So, uh, Turkish Hospital, which actually uh, it used to be the the first teaching hospital in Gaza, actually was affiliated to the Islamic University of Gaza, which is you know my medical school. And now it's becoming a cancer center. It actually became cancer center uh, a year and a half ago. And it's the main cancer center for adult. And that has been targeted. The, their third floor, along with the, you know, some of the other building as well from, from it, uh, it has been uh, targeted. And there is, and I have a video from a, a colleague of mine who's there. There is a bunch of cancer patients. You can see they're like very thin and they're like on chemo and they're getting like actively getting chemo they're being displaced outside the hospital. Hmm. So this is also new. In terms of other healthcare facilities, there's also Indonesian hospital, which was donated by, you know, Indonesia um, in in the northern Gaza. Uh, it was partially damaged. This is just from this morning. Um, 25 uh, ambulances were targeted and uh, 57 healthcare facilities were targeted as well. And that resulted in a total of 12 hospitals and 32 uh, primary healthcare centers um, were completely like uh, out of service right now. Um, you know, so I think that's the that's a, really the biggest update uh, from you know over the last uh, week or so. And when we spoke previously, we had spoken about the um, the bombing and the fire at the Anglican Hospital Al Ali. Um, in Gaza City, um, right. which, as far as I know, the Israeli military has denied, but we know it's part of a series of, of hospital um, bombings and attacks, many of which uh, there is no controversy or denial about um, whose munitions is targeting them. Um, and, you know, you've mentioned, I, th- I think you, you put online or, or I, I followed some of your social media that it, at least 35 physicians have been killed, and I, I think you'd mentioned... Um, correct me if I'm wrong, not only the orthopedist that you mentioned, but also an anesthesiologist was killed yeah. who had been one of your students. And, and I think others in Gaza have written about a, an experienced, um, forget if it was an OBGYN or emergency physician who was killed while pregnant along with her husband and her, uh, and her toddler. Um, right. And, and you mentioned before that not only the physicians that um, we've spoken about, but also Additional medical students, dentists, and nurses, and other healthcare team members have been killed in the attacks. Um, and along with, we know at least 3,000 children, which is in the last week more than the average number of children killed per year in um, uh, war and political violence over the last, I think, three years. So, 
um, really just unprecedented um, uh, devastation. Anything else that you would want to say, particularly about the toll on the lives of healthcare workers and their families yeah. in Gaza right now? No, I've been keeping uh, track of them uh, personally and uh, other like colleagues as well who've been helping with like a list. So I built a list of, of them the, just because the Minister of Health, they have intermittent connections. So, I mean, we've seen it and it has been nerve wracking, like uh, 48 hours of no uh, Internet, no like uh, phone services. Uh, so I lost contact with my family and that goes with the same like people from Gaza, like they lost contact with their families, even journalists and all of that. So no coverage at all. So I felt it was responsibilities, at least for me, to cover uh, the casualties, at least the people who were killed, uh, you know, in Gaza. So, and, I mean, and... as you said, it's across the spectrum. There is physicians, and that includes residents and attendings. And that's, uh, we have uh, so far 23 physicians. Uh, eight dentists. Um, we have four medical and dental students. We have two uh, medical sciences professors at the university, uh, like IUG and uh, Al Azhar. We have 40, at least 46 nurses were killed. 20 paramedics, physiotherapy, pharmacists, optometrists, like a, a bunch, a bunch, like literally across the spectrum. Um, I mean, so yeah, I mean, the, and the, the number that the, the I have the names of all of them, obviously waiting on, you know, more people to kind of names to come in. But those are not just numbers. I want to emphasize on that. Um, those are stories of really, really hard work. People have been working really hard to kind of become what, what they were. Um, we're talking about two, three deans of medical schools and kind of nursing schools. We're talking about, you know, experts like, you know, one one of only three board certified burn surgeon pathologists, three anesthesiologists, two OBGYN doctors, and and much more. I mean, you know, we're talking about like a, an actual like healthcare body that is you know being you know targeted, and you know the, the healthcare system is already collapsed, and, and you can imagine the impact when you kill you know 126 of those. It's it's just a lot. Wow. Um, and another one that I think we touched on last time um, that you briefly just touched on is also um, the number of journalists um, and photojournalists who've been killed at the same time that foreign journalists have basically been prevented. I think Al Jazeera is the only one that's really been um, covering this on an international level with um, with staff inside. And we know that the bureau chief for Gaza from Al Jazeera uh, he survived, but all of his family, including his children and wife, were killed while he was live exactly. on air. Um, so, uh, you know, anything else you wanted to add to that? Uh, I don't have, I haven't been keeping track of them, not because they are less important, but just because I was trying to focus on the healthcare it's a lot. impact on healthcare. But I, I'm, I'm, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I've seen, uh, that's, uh, Al Jazeera, like senior, uh, correspondent, but I mean, like previously, um, I mean, in this war, so one of my dear friends was also killed, uh, in the, and he's a senior journalist as well. And in other wars too, or like we lost friends and like neighbors and like a bunch of them were like journalists. Wow. So really, I mean, I think any moving, uh, moving like human being in Gaza, like the moment you move outside your house, you'll be targeted. And also inside your house, Right. You'll be targeted. So there's no safe place. There's I mean, no unfortunately, my mom. Right now. Exactly. No, nothing safe there. My mom is still there. They're living in the, in Gaza. I mean, they. I, which is kind of like surprising to me. People don't know that. I've been asked multiple times, or oh, why why can't they move to the south? The problem is many people have been trying to move to the south, but we've seen like in, you know intentional targeting of civilians fleeing their houses to the south and they're being targeted so it's not i think it's it's more dangerous to kind of move outside your house so my, my mom my brothers sisters my nephews nieces all of them are still in their in their not their original like apartment in another apartment uh, sheltering there right. so i think many people are just trying to just stay where they are 
Um, you know, we know that uh, we spoke before about um, trying to get uh, medical and surgical, um, uh, you know, um, bodies and leaders to, to call for an immediate ceasefire now while acknowledging and, and understanding any horrors of, of the attacks on October 7th in southern Israel, really just getting a sense of the complete devastation and the lives lost, the families lost um, in an ongoing attack on Gaza um, and, uh, you know, Anyone who, if we haven't called for a ceasefire, haven't achieved a ceasefire yet, um, I think the moment is now to call for a ceasefire to end these killings of, as we mentioned, already 3,000 children, already, you know, a generation of, uh, if not two generations of surgical and medical leaders as well as nurses and paramedics um, killed as well. Um, you know, we're running up against the, the end of the show. Anything else, Osai, that you'd want uh our audience uh, for the Trauma Code um, in, in, in New York City. For anyone just joining us, this is Dr. Osaid Asser, a uh, surgery uh, trainee in the U.S. from Gaza, updating us on the situation uh, in the Holy Land right now. Yeah, and I wanted to add one more uh, thing really quick. Uh, the Society of Critical Care Medicine, uh, they announced uh, uh, two days ago, they launched con- sort of a campaign to help out in the, you know, in the, um, the many thousands of uh, injured people like with traumatic injuries. So they called for any trauma assistance, it's a trauma code sort of uh, radio uh, um, for trauma surgeons, vascular surgeon, orthopedic surgeon, anesthesiologist, intensivist to apply. And if you go to STCM or Society of Critical Care Medicine and go to Gaza, um, section uh, there is an application if you have experience if you are in those uh, fields um, once the borders which you know as we know the borders are still closed but once the borders are closed there will be a, a tremendous a, many missions to go there to help out because they really need a lot of experience and Definitely. a lot of like equipment to help with the with the traumatic injuries that they, they've been seeing Definitely. And, and thanks for joining us, Osaid Asura, um, on the Trauma Code in New York City on WBAI. Uh, and again, if you appreciate us, New York, we appreciate you and we need your help to keep shows like this going. You can give uh, the pledge line 212-209-2950 or on the website, give to, that's the number two, give to WBAI.org or the donate button on WBAI.org. And you can find uh, the Trauma Code wherever you get your podcast on Trauma Code or email at traumacodewbai at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us on the Trauma Code, New York. WPFW Washington and WBAI New York, I'm Darnia Samuels. Here are some headlines for this hour.